Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with Rick Ernst. Now, Rick's is a name that you should be familiar with uh, as he produced the documentary Get Thrashed from around 2006-2007, still available online. We discuss Rick's long career in the music, uh, or the television arm of the music industry, uh, with stints at MTV, uh, on Headbangers Ball, 120 Minutes, and then eventually ending up at Roadrunner Records as the head of video production. Now, video as a mechanism for labels to promote their their shtick isn't something I've come across yet. It's not a rabbit hole I've jumped down. So I was very, very eager to do so with Rick. And this is a very free-form conversation uh, to support that agenda. So I'm a little bit clippy in this episode. Uh, Rick had the distinct honor of breaking in the new Temple of Blair production office. And I'm still realigning the kinks in the sound and things like that. I'm sure I'm sure he'll get over it. Anyway, thanks to Rick for his time. One, two, fuck shoot up. to say get get thrashed as an artifact of, of a documentary like in terms of what it looked at and what it what it documented really obviously it's a it's a it's geographically sound it's it's geographically specific it's also genre specific um but since then since 2007 like literally as that was coming out there's been like a revival since then hasn't there there has. It's amazing that all those thrash <laughs> bands, you know, came back bigger and stronger and with some albums that are, you know, you know, classics in their own right, along with a whole yeah. new wave of kids that grew up on that stuff, you know? So, um, you know, there, there, there definitely is a, uh, a possibility that you could do a sequel to it. You know, the, the rebirth of thrash metal. I don't know if, uh, <clears throat> if I would ever go down that road just because get, Get Thrashed to me was just such a pivotal moment in time and sort of encapsulated that thrash metal moment. And it ended on such a great note with these bands starting to come back. Yeah. That I don't know if I would be able to do any justice to the first Get Thrashed with the second one that kind mm. of told a story but evolved. You know, I think the story really would be picking up where thrash metal left off, you know, mm. in 1990, 1991, 92, and death metal sort of picked up the torch and became the next biggest and heaviest thing. And, mm. that, and that's actually, you know, when we're talking about Roadrunner Records, um, that's actually where I discovered Roadrunner, pretty much with Sepultura, Obituary, and, you know, where death metal sort of took the, the mantle from thrash as the heaviest music on the block. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, because now we're in the sort of the age of oversaturation. There's always something for everyone. And I just think... We still call Evil, we still call Municipal Waste, we still call Power Trip, we call it Thrash Revival, we still call it Thrash Revival. At some point, it's just Thrash. That's, and my, that's my, the essence of the question, right? Of is, has that era sort of aged to a point where it's noteworthy to talk about? I think so in a way. Yeah, I, I, like I said, I just don't know how I would, how, how I would top yeah, yeah oh, no, no, what those bands did so like you said at a certain point thrash metal becomes not a revival it becomes a genre that's everlasting and it's here yeah, and yeah. there are bands that play it and there are bands that you know that that that, that you know pioneered it so mm. um you know i i, I would leave that to, i think probably somebody else to take a crack at the new wave of uh thrash metal bands and 
and see if they could take a, a stab at it. Oh, I, yeah, I, think, I think I've laid my, my marker down with, with the first <laughs> get thrashed and <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I could top it with it with a part two. I won't pressure you, but I just thought it's interesting <laughs> how like it, it's been like 14 odd years and there's so much has happened. But um, it, to me, it's like it almost lives and dies by municipal waste uh, partying. That to me is like the ultimate fucking 21st century yeah. thrash album to me. Absolutely. There's, there's loads of the ones out there. Like Nightmare Logic is really fucking, fucking crushing as well. But anyway, anyway <laughs> we're going to talk about Roadrunner. Normally, normally I, I, I usually go to meticulous detail to prep interviewees and I try and find out everything and all this stuff. But with yourself, because it's a new academic rabbit hole to jump down video isn't necessarily something that i am too overly familiar with obviously i watched kerrang tv in the uk back in the day and that was kind of it i don't really watch videos that much now i just watch the new trivium one and that's only because it's the only way you can listen to the song at the minute well actually i could have gone to spotify but i wanted something on this screen while i was playing games on that screen sure but yeah yeah but it's it's <sighs> I always, I always give a massive shit when it comes to Roadrunner about how they place themselves. Because one thing that you'll sometimes hear among these sort of conversations are, oh yeah, there's Casey's fingerprint. There's a Roadrunner fingerprint in almost every market. Even to the point where I went through every Kerrang! magazine and saw, all right, there's a trend here. Kerrang! are typically giving Roadrunner either a half page, like a half column or a full column. Sorry, two half columns or a full column, depending on what's happening per week. There's an arrangement there by which if you're flipping through Kerrang, you're going to see Roadrunner every fucking week. Similarly, when I was talking to Amy Chiaretta, we're talking about the radio and how they make sure all the diehard metal radio stations got all the heavy shit first, make sure the ground, underground, the cult side was like always satisfied with their relationship with Roadrunner. But I know fuck all about video <laughs> and the world of video because UK video versus US video, especially when we talk about MTV and VH1, they are dramatically different. And I was speaking to a guy from TMF, the Dutch MTV, wildly different. So as I said at the start, I usually prep people, but I think I need, a, I need a meander into this world. I need to sort of like, I need to be handheld. I need to do a bit of sleepwalking. I need to feel around a bit. So I've given you like rough ideas of what I think is important. So bear with me if it feels like completely off the wall. Oh, no worries. I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to answer the questions. You know, I was there for the last, you know, uh, I mean, Roadrunner is still going, but I, I think the last uh, great run that they had was, you know, uh, was up until, uh, you know, Monty and a few others were, uh, were let go, you know, so I was there for that last section of it. You know, I always, I think we spoke earlier or, you know, off the record about my three phases of Roadrunner. My, my first one was as a fan with Sepultura, Obituary, and bands like that. That's when I discovered them, sort of like in the early 90s. Um, before then, I was into thrash, and Roadrunner wasn't really known as a thrash label, you know, Atrophy being the one I remember most. But, you know, there were other labels releasing thrash metal albums. So it wasn't until the 90s that I got into Roadrunner as a fan. I went to work at MTV as a producer, and I started working with uh, the folks and the bands at Roadrunner. So that was sort of phase two, working with them as I was producing at MTV, Headbangers Ball and other shows. Mm -hmm. And of course, the third one, I ended up working at Roadrunner from about 2008 to 2013, 2012 or so mm -hmm. as the director of video production, managing videos and, you know, digital shorts and documentaries and all sorts of stuff. So, so I was there sort of the beginning as a fan and then working with the bands and then working at the label itself. So... You had a front seat to become to it becoming 
incredibly viable when because when you for when in your phase one it was still very much independent and independent outlier music very sort of like groundbreaking stuff for, for heavy people then in your phase two as you work at mtv you're seeing it become like a monster with slipknot and nickelback and things like that and in your phase three it's an established beast it's probably the one of the bigger independents, if not the biggest, I don't know about like in the wider world, but certainly in the metal world. So I think, I think there's some, there's certainly some things we can bounce off of and, and some valuable observations we can make. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's start with phase two then, because producing Headbangers Ball at MTV, this I have zero experience of. I know you, the UK had an MTV Headbangers Ball. I know it was quite effective and they, had a great relationship with Roadrunner because I know there was Vanessa Warwick who yes, did a lot of work with a lot of the bands basically. And I've here incidentally through different interviews that she'd like go to bat for them a lot of the time. Now I know Dino has a lot of reverence for her and things like that. So how powerful a tool, I'm trying to phrase this in a Roadrunner label context, how powerful a tool is Headbangers Ball to a label like Roadrunner? Well, you know, when I first started at MTV, I was an intern on the first Headbangers Ball, and then eventually I became a, a producer on the Headbangers Ball that Jamie Josta hosted sort of like five, six years later. Yeah. But, you know, all, all throughout, um, it, it was obvious that, you know, the metal bands, heavier bands, they all wanted to be, you know, on Headbangers Ball. You know, the metal fans would give MTV, you know, crap because they didn't play, you know, the kind of music that we all liked, mm. except for the two hours in the middle of the night. So, you know, there definitely was like an animosity from metal fans towards the show, you know, but, um, you know, in terms of fans, most of us would watch, you know, we would just cross our fingers that we'd get a glimpse of a Voivod video or a COC video. And it was important. Listen, it did make a difference in terms of, uh, you know, visibility, you know, maybe the, right. the, the, the ultimate, you know, hardcore metalhead knew who COC was in Voivod and certainly they did. But, you know, to, to reach that next level in terms of album sales, you needed to do something to get beyond just the hardcore fan. You need to, you know, get a hold of the more mainstream fan. And the first uh, place to do that was MTV and Headbangers Ball right. because you had people that were watching the mainstream rock stuff and they were also getting exposed to heavier stuff. Um, you know, and I think it was important. And you look at Metallica, who in the United States had never released a video and Master of Puppets, they were they were big, but they were opening for Ozzy Osbourne on an, an arena tour. Mm -hmm. You know, the next album comes out, and Justice for All, they released the first video ever for one. MTV, especially Headbangers Ball, is playing it every week. And then all of a sudden, Metallica's headlining arenas sold out nights, multiple nights in New York. So it, it, it definitely made a difference. I guess, what were the other options for the average metalhead in those days? Was there any other sort of like bespoke metal show that wasn't like a cable access or a local show? That's it. You know, there really yeah, was right. well, there was nothing else. You know, it's hard to imagine a time before YouTube and social media and instant access to all this stuff. But at the time, there was no other alternative. You know, there were a few public access stations in New York. There used to be a, one called U68, the power hour. You know, you could barely get it. And once again, it was in the middle of the night and it was just for a small audience in New York. So it was very, it was very important. Headbangers Ball, even though it was on late at night, once once a week and it was very difficult to find that one video needle in a haystack type of thing mm. it was important because the fans you wanted to reach were usually watching that show this is the thing isn't it i mean 
there's the story of Guns N' Roses, isn't there? So there's Appetite for Destruction comes out in 87 to not much fanfare. But someone, I don't know if it is the UK Headbangers Ball, plays Welcome to the Jungle at like six in the morning on one of their shows, like somewhere in the UK. And that starts the fire that eventually turns into what it did. I can't, it's something, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Just, you know, listen, there's there's a lot to be said. I mentioned Metallica, but there's example after example of how, you know, MTV, specifically Headbangers Ball, was influential in helping, you know, a band, you know, build and grow. You know, in my time as, as an intern on the first Headbangers Ball, I can think of like Prong and COC and Life mm -hmm. of Agony, and these are bands that I knew of. But like to see them on Headbangers Ball and to see them going from the small clubs like Lamore in New York to playing like, you know, the Ritz in New York City and bigger places and seeing them grow. I don't think that happens without Headbangers Ball and being played mm -hmm. on that on that show, you know, again, because there was nowhere else. There was one other place. It also was MTV. It was a show called Beavis and Butthead. And there's a famous story about Rob Zombie, uh, uh, White Zombie, actually, right? Before Rob Zombie, there was there was White Zombie. And um, they played Thunder Kiss 65. And from obscurity to, you know, everybody knew who Rob, uh, White Zombie was. And that's um, another example of how, you know, MTV was important, you know? A lot of us don't want to admit it, you know? And, and the hardcore metal fans, I think, we, we knew about this music and we didn't need the help from Headbangers Ball. But again, to reach that next level beyond the hardcore fan, you, you needed some help. And Headbangers Ball was that help. I think it's really important in the process. I, cause I hate, cause I, I hate sort of like when we have to reflect and go, you know, it's not like fucking these days, but the, we have to peel back one onion layer and sort of understand that, we all like to think people around the world like to think, but we had no idea that we liked to think until we found the one campfire and, the, and we all gathered around that one campfire and got that little bit cozy and warm around that one thing. And that's the feeling that I don't, I don't know if it's me getting older or it's just like the way that information is, is sort of disseminated these days. I don't think that feeling comes around as much anymore, but then again, I might just be getting old, but I think that's, that's the, the clincher here, isn't it? That's what everyone was grabbing onto, and that's why it was important. So, what year are we at here when you're an intern? Uh, I was an intern there in '93, and then I was working for them for a brief moment in like '94. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and and then it quickly the, the show was canceled uh, as a new wave of music was coming in, mm -hmm. and it was ironic that sort of like the last breath of MTV Headbangers Ball was introducing bands like Soundgarden and Nirvana, Faith No More. And then, you know, within a, certainly within a year, the show was, you know, basically renamed, rebranded, and it was more of an alternative kind of, kind of show, only to reappear years later as Headbangers Ball. Yeah, it's, it's, that's like, that's, that's, that's the corporate sort of like ebbs and flows, isn't it? That's the Absolutely, migration yeah. of interests. So when, when you're interning that, 93, 94, key roadrunner years. Very key. Yeah. Bloody Kisses, uh, River Run, Runs Red. Um, did you have any visibility or did you have any knowledge of how labels would try and leverage that tool that is uh, um, Headbangers Ball? Would they try and, uh, I don't know, how do, how do I phrase it in a, in a diplomatically sound way? How would they try and get on? What would they try and do? Would they try and just offer money and go, get fucking typo negative on there? 500 grand. Oh no, we've got Metallica on for 600 grand. Fuck off. It's going to be seven and, you know. 
Listen, to the, to the best of my knowledge, you know, working at MTV, um, you know, Roadrunner was, or any label really, uh, of, of that sort of indie genre and that had metal bands as their prominent, you know, focus, none of them had the money to offer MTV anything substantial. You know, really it, it boiled down to the people who programmed Headbangers Ball looking at album sales, very important album sales, and also, you know, just liking the music. You know, um, a lot of people gave, Ricky Rackman was the host of Headbangers Ball while I was there. And a lot of people gave him flack for the, some of the, some of the you know, videos that they played. He, he never had really had a voice in this. So it never was him. It was mm. the people in the programming department. So it was really about album sales. If the album was doing well, then they would take a look. If they liked the song, if they liked the video, and certainly there was a relationship. You know, uh, you know, with, with like Jonas, you know, Jonas was probably the guy. Um, and, and even back then, uh, you know, some of the other folks having a relationship with the MTV programming department was was very helpful to getting the video right. on the air. But really, I think it boiled down to sales and whether the programming people at MTV believed in the band. And certainly mm -hmm. with a band like Typo Negative and Sepultura, they did because they were played frequently. It took a while with Typo, as I understand it. Yes, it did. It did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish I could give you more information, but um, I, I just know the basics of, of how it works. And, uh, you know, was all, I was always as a fan and as an intern so excited to see that we were playing Sepultura and, and Typo Negative and, and, and to see the evolution and the show just get heavier and heavier. Um, you know, it's because it really was a reflection of, of what was going on in music. Mm. You know, mm. um, I'm not sure that. Uh, MTV had any influence over, you know, breaking, you know, a, a new genre of death metal, you know, death metal, for instance. I, I just think that it became popular enough that it was on the radar for the people who programmed the show. And, um, you know, that's when they started playing, you know, those bands. No, I'm going to make a note to actually just go back and look at some headbangers, well, like in earnest, as opposed to like the clips that the algorithm sends me to, because I think it's, how do I articulate this without sounding fucking boring? Well, it's too late for that. It's, it, it, it's clearly important. There's clearly some milestone. If, if this is the one campfire everyone's coming around and is being determined by the same things that typically determine radio play and print, which is relationships, momentum, and these other like legs that make a band stand on, then I should be looking ahead back as well for these isolated cool incidents where let's say at, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go. And then they played "Refuse Resist," and then the next week, KSAD sold ten thousand more. It's not gonna be like that, but I think it's worth me having a look and, and seeing what um, what stuck or what seemed sure. to capture their their uh, their interest from those days. There we go. I made a note to do that at some point. <laughs> so when where do you move on from in terms of um, after interning at? Yeah, I was, at, I was at MTV, you know, interning on Headbangers Ball, and I, and I wound up working on other shows there. I worked on 120 Minutes, which was uh, sort of like the alternative uh, uh, music um, show, also airing late at night. Mm. But they certainly played, um, you know, a lot of bands, uh, you know, Blink-182 before anybody knew who Blink-182 was. You know, that was another show that was groundbreaking in the sense it found all these new bands and played them, and then so many of them went on to... Um, you know, become huge, you know, mm. really big bands. Essentially, if you think of like the Warped Tour, 
Like so many of those bands got their start early on on 120 minutes, along with mm. some of the you know bands like The Cure and The Smiths that were before my time on the show. But that's sort of the uh, you know the uh, where, where all that came from in that show. But af after that, I was at MTV for a while, and it wasn't until I don't know like 10 years later or so that they brought Headbangers Ball back. They brought it back with Jamie Josta from Hatebreed hosting the show. And by that time, I was, you know, fortunate enough to climb the ladder and I was the supervising producer on the show. And, you know, that was a whole whole nother experience. Um, you know, a lot of fun uh, going from intern to supervising producer and, you know, actually being uh, able to get your picture with uh, Tony Iommi and Rob Halford and not fear that you'll get fired. You know, the intern's taking pictures with all the bands again. Get it out of here. <laughs> so, and at so that point... And at that point, you know, they were they were playing very heavy stuff. You know, real headbangers was very heavy, uh, and it was almost the opposite effect. If that, you know, you had a, uh, a melodic song and a pop song, it was almost a little bit more difficult to get on the show at that point because they were just really. And it was it was it was a great show, but it was heavy heavy stuff. I wonder if there's a link here between the rise of emo because I think this area is two thousand. Is it two thousand six when Jamie's yeah. doing it when he yeah. starts? So this yep. is the height of emo. So maybe it's been brought in as like an alternative to this sort of what is effectively heavy pop. Because that's what emo kind of was. It was topping billboards and it was doing really sort of effective market things. So maybe metal had its place as, as a market outlier there again, as far as MTV was concerned, perhaps. Yeah, and certainly Jamie, you know, Josta brought a uh, you know, level of credibility that really you know, could not be, could not be touched. Hmm. And once again, he wasn't really into, involved in the programming, but I think at that point, everybody realized that Jamie being Jamie, the singer of Hatebreed, that he brings a certain value and, and certain he's in the scene and new bands and new music. And he would, you know, suggest stuff. And he certainly had a little bit more, um, you know, input into what was being played. But once again, it really wasn't the host programming the show. Let's divide, let's define the programmer's role in this then. Because I need to know who's yeah. picking up. I need to know, like, who are the people that have got their ears to the ground? So it, it, yeah, the program I mean, is literally the, effectively the A&R people of TV, or is that, a, is that a, am I trying to fit a, a uh, round page to a square that, hole? That's, 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 sort of, that's sort of correct. I mean, the programmers, you know, were, were their job was to essentially find, you know, the next, you know, big thing, you know, um, and they would do that by going to shows and seeing, you know, a packed house or an enthusiastic crowd or a band that was just amazing. And then comparing that to album sales and just using that information to see what's what's coming down the pipe, what's the next big thing, as well as what's huge right now. It was a sure. combination of all of that stuff. Um, and again, I think the MTV programming folks also had a, had a, a small level of, um, you know, uh, uh, the ability to pick what they liked. You know, I, I mean, I don't think if a band sold four albums last week that they were going to be on the show, but I think there was, uh, you know, some ability for, for, for them to pick stuff they liked. But mainly their job was to look at the next big thing, look at album sales, look at how the band was doing uh, on the road. And um, also, you know, you know, listen, what label they were on, you know, um, you know, and how well that label works with MTV, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, w I w I'm probably overstepping from your role as intern and, and the way to producing and whatnot. But Roadrunner's relationship with MTV must have been somewhat credible for a number of reasons. One, there's the MTV compilations in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, there's actually, I'm, I'm, let's ask, let's ask this. Were you cognizant of what Roadrunner was doing in that period while you were at MTV? Cause MTV is fucking like between yeah. 
you interning and producing, there's a massive seismic shift in what they were producing. It was like, sure, Beavis and Butthead through to the fucking Osbournes, like a reality TV core, MTV2 comes in, Zane Lowe alienates me on a personal level. <laughs> and then we move into like the Headbangers Ball world. The Roadrunner has got this, especially in the late 90s, the way I perceive it is we've got flagship acts doing flagship things. And then the, the label underneath those flagship acts are doing really crazy things like they're going to rap and they're doing some indie stuff and they've got some Britpop things going along and things like that. Were you cognizant of this uh, while you were there? or as a well, I, I, Absolutely. You know, uh, part of that was as, as a fan, you know, there was a whole era from, I don't know, 95 to 2003 where metal was just kind of like, it was a dirty word, right? Not only on MTV, but on radio everywhere. It was tough for metal bands for those eight years. In those eight years, I was at MTV and I was, you know, behind the scenes saying, you guys got to play this, you should play this, you should play this. And if they weren't, you know, I was playing it in the office or I was calling up, you know, somebody at Roadrunner, you know, uh, to go see a show to check out Slipknot, you know, to see Slipknot at the Limelight, the small club in New York City before they were big, you know, to have Fear Factory, to go to bat for Fear Factory and get them to play Spring Break, you know, down in Cancun amidst all the other shows MTV was doing, which you probably can imagine what they were, game shows and drinking shows and TNA. And we've got Fear Factory up on stage. Still my proudest moment at MTV to get Fear Factory on Spring Break. How did absolutely. Come? I was absolutely, you know, you know, machine. I remember Machine Head albums being sent to me. Roadrunner would send me stuff, um, you know, always thank them for that. And, you know, I still have every Machine Head album. And, you know, a lot of that was because Roadrunner was, was sending me stuff, you know. So I was absolutely in tune very specifically with, with, with what Roadrunner was doing because I had become friends with those guys that worked there. And, you know, they sort of, you know, they, they wanted me to hear what they were doing. And I wanted to hear what they were doing because I was a fan. Who was your main point of contact? Aaliyah, Aaliyah Choa. Hmm. Aaliyah was in marketing um, and also Corey Brennan. Yeah. Corey Brennan now manages Slipknot and, and other bands. But, you know, back then he worked at Roadrunner. And uh, those were my two main main contacts. Jen Miola. Also, uh, so those those are really the three people I, I think back on, and those are the three contacts. They were all marketing product management folks. Yeah, okay. So yeah. they were more than happy to send me CDs and put me on the list to go see the bands. And I certainly at MTV was like, I'll take free free music. <laughs> I'll take a free ticket. So tell tell me about getting Fear Factory onto Spring Break then, because you mentioned that it was at the height of the T. We'll call it the TNA era. Not to disparage yeah. your colleagues or your workplace, but it, it, they had a role. It is, it is, it is what it is. And, and spring break, uh, once a year, usually it was uh, in, in Florida or, or the year we were down with Fear Factory was in Cancun. And, um, you know, um, I don't know. I had been close with the folks at Roadrunner uh, and, and specifically, uh, you know, I believe it was uh, Aliyah Choa that I uh, was talking to about, about Fear Factory or one of the other bands playing spring break. We also talked about Slipknot. And the, uh, the, the, the genesis was is that WCW, professional wrestling, was huge. So, you know, my bosses, knowing that I was a huge wrestling fan, came to me and they said, you know, what, what could we do to get wrestlers down to spring break? So I came up with this crazy concept that what if we had a battle royal? And a uh, battle royal is essentially where a bunch of guys are in the ring, they fight each other, and they attempt to throw each other over the top rope, and the last one left is the winner. So I said, what if we get a bunch of WCW guys to do a battle royal? 
but it's not a normal battle royal because we need music. What if the band is playing music right next to the ring and the band just keeps playing until the last guy is left? So they get to play how many songs and we get to see wrestling and we get to see a performance. Of course, this band can't be like a pop band. It can't be the Backstreet Boys. It has to be somebody heavy, really heavy. And the label that has the coolest, heaviest bands is Roadrunner. So, you know, luckily I got a connection there. I'll call up and see what we can do. And, um, you know, we made it happen with Fear Factory. And it was, uh, like I said, it, was a, it was a miracle that it happened, but still a moment that I'm, uh, I'm so proud of. Dira, is this when you're on 120 minutes? Is that your, your main role at this stage? Yeah, at this point, I think it was 120 minutes, but also they had put me on different special right. different shows and stuff. So that's why I jumped off of uh, 120 minutes and, and was working on this spring break, break special. Um, this is why it's important to talk to people like you to sort of break the mold of my own sort of perception of these things, because I regard that area and that kind of music in 100, yeah, the 120 minutes sort of warped or stuff. I call that the Tony Hawk window where Tony Hawk's pro skater comes out and that sort of informs everyone's tastes for the next few years and still does to this day in a big way. But uh, when Slipknot land then, because Slipknot ends up becoming chart toppers, platinum sales, all the things, the very, they end up being MTV viable. Were they MTV viable? um, Were they accepted as MTV viable or did they have to break into being MTV um, viable? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, I, I'm guessing asking if MTV was receptive to the idea of nine nut jobs playing death metal in masks. They, they, they were once they got in. I, I don't know how long it took them to actually break in to get their first airplay on MTV. I know once they were, were you know, once they started getting played on MTV, they were on a lot. Mm-hmm. They were on a lot. Um, they made great videos. That's that's one thing. So, you know, they were selling records, right? They were selling albums. Um, you know, they had a cool look about them, but I also think they made, made really smart videos and, you know, through the entire, their entire existence, they, they have made very intelligent, smart videos. And you can probably attribute a lot of that to clown who's sort of one of the creative directors, you know, of the the band when it comes to visuals. And, uh, it was a director, Paul Brown, who was very instrumental in creating the, the, the video looks for them. But yes, MTV was very receptive. Once Slipknot got in the door, they were in and they were never, they were never kicked out. You've just lassoed me down a rabbit hole because I, again, I don't know this world very well. So what's so important about meaningful and clever videos? Cause I know, and I'd like the look of some of those videos, some of the early Slipknot videos, but I don't know what's important about them. So I just off, think, you, off you go. I, yeah. I just think, you know, when the executives at MTV are watching hundreds of videos per week, you know, you got to do something that stands out, that sticks out. And maybe it's a good song. Hopefully it's a good song, but also it has to be something that's visually interesting. You know, one of the first bands to do this was Aha with Take On Me. You know, that was a video that, you know, drew the attention of the people at MTV at the time. You know, Prodigy had a video called Smack My Bitch Up. That was another video. I remember people watching that video and going, oh, my God, this is different. This is cool. Um, I think Slipknot in some ways was, was very similar that people saw the video work they were doing. And they wanted to show it, you know, you know, it was almost like a street cred for MTV by playing a cool looking video by Slipknot. Um, so they were very smart with what they did visually. And that appealed to the people at MTV that were programming the channel. Because, again, you don't want the same you know, video over and over again. Mm. You want something that stands out amidst all the videos. Back then they played videos. <laughs> now, now not so much. 
But back then, you you wanted something that stood out, and then the Slipknot video stood out. If, you know, certainly because of the guys in the band, nine guys in masks, but also they had smart looking videos with intelligent themes and very well shot, well done. One thing you mentioned there was underground credibility, which I think is something that repeats in Roadrunner's tenure, even up to the end, because even as even as a non-strictly independent, when they teamed up with the Warner and teamed up with Universal, there was still some underground credibility to what they were doing. And bigger businesses, like the MTVs of the world, latched onto that, I think. I, yeah, as a brand, I think that was always a good sign. They were a good thing to hook into because it made other people look good, look good when they tried to get some street-level band artists or music or video or song or anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Roadrunner, you know, the name and the brand certainly uh, had a certain connotation and it was, you know, cool underground metal, you know? So if you were playing a band that was on Roadrunner, most of the time, you know, you, you absorb some of that cool underground metal vibe, whether it's Headbangers Ball or Spring Break, you know, for, (laughs) for, for a half an hour during that one weekend, we had we had a sort of cool, you know, Roadrunner metal vibe going on. You know? how, how long did the last guy last then? Because if he was... Oh, it was ironic that Fear Factory played three songs, which is probably about 12, 13 minutes. It was the obsolete album. So they played three songs and about 13 minutes it took. Right. With a band like, oh, for fuck's sake, could you not, could you not last it longer, fellow, whatever your name is? <laughs> right. Well, the show was supposed to be a half an hour as well. So it's a lot of things... <laughs> A lot of things factored into uh, how many songs Fear Factory was going to play and how long the rest of us were going to last. But yes, it was very ironic that it was three songs, one song per act pretty much. And mm. by the end, one guy was left standing. <laughs> what did do you make of Nickelback then? Because while we're in this era, we're in 2001 approximately, aren't we? So. The one guy left standing, by the way, was Chris Jericho. Right, okay. That's a but very metal after It was appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, Nick, Nick, Nickelback. Um, yeah, what's what's your take? You can do a personal take, and then you can because I'm going to ask afterwards. How does MTV deal with with sort of backlash? Because there's obviously there's a big fan backlash around Nickelback, and there's always like a, a weird hate thing, which we could we could talk about. But I don't know how it fits into the video world. But tell me about your experience with this with this band. When I left, I left MTV and at the end of 2007, beginning of 2008, I left to go to Roadrunner. And, and one of the guys, you know, I remember telling me, he said, how long before you start drinking the Nickelback Kool-Aid? I said, what are you talking about? You know, I, I didn't have anything against him. I didn't know the guys. Yeah, I know, knew some of the songs. But I tell you something, you know, going to Roadrunner and working with them. Number one, they're really nice guys. They honestly were one of the easiest bands to work with. Really, they were, you know. I had a lot of fun working with them. And um, it's it's... It's it's sort of to me it was the same thing like when you had bands like you know Poison and Warrant writing these songs that were very hooky, you know people said ah oh, they suck and they're not metal and they, they saw no value in it. For me, especially as I got older, and by the way, I said all those same things about those bands back in the day because I was into heavier stuff. I was not into Poison or or Warrant, but as I as I got older, I appreciated those bands a lot more for their songwriting ability and. And, and just, you know, for the good times I had, you know, um, remember remembering being out at a club and they're playing the music and it, it was a good time. Mm-hmm. So in the same way, I think you can't deny that Nickelback, I mean, they write hooky songs. You know, you go to a Nickelback concert 
And even if you're not that familiar with them, if they play 20 songs, you probably have 15 of them stuck in the back of your head. Mm -hmm. And you can vilify them for that, or you can say, damn, those motherfuckers write some really catchy songs. I choose the latter, okay? Yeah. And I also like that they blow shit up on stage. I also like that Chad can sing. I like that the band are, are you argue with me, but they're good at playing their instruments. They play their instruments. They don't lip sync. You know, I like when they play an ACDC cover or a Charlie Daniels band cover. I like their choices when it comes to that. You know, so I don't have a lot of bad things to say about Nickelback. If, if people are going to crucify them because their lyrics aren't deep and have this, you know, deeper meaning, I get you. I understand. But like, you know, there are a lot of other bands that don't have deeper, you know, meanings behind their songs, you know? So yeah, it's easy for me, though, because I, it's really easy for me because Summer Side Up was one of the first CDs. I remember getting the bus into town and me and my mate put our money together and we got Silver Side Up and we got Tenacious D Wonder Boy, the single. And we played Red Faction for like seven hours. And it was ace. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've got like, there's a nostalgia bug there. But I think when you were discussing this Nickelback as a love-hate thing, Today is an interesting day to talk about it. As in these days, not today. There's no special day. Because we're like, I call this the, the post-Last Jedi era, where people realize that like the overwhelming opinions on the internet no longer matter. Because like everyone will say they hate The Last Jedi, but if you talk to 100 people, 50 of them will say it's fucking brilliant. So it doesn't matter what all these people say. Similar right. with Nickelback. People are now sort of coming back onto Nickelback going, ah, I never really, I never really disliked the, them. The vocal minority, right? I mean... Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's cool. It's certainly easy, right? If you want to jump on the team and bash Nickelback, but like I, you know, once you have so many people speaking out, so you know, so you know, aggressively and so against anything, it makes me think like, wait, wait a second, why? Why do they hate this so much? Yeah, it, and it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's not. It's not worth the effort. And um, I, I think actually, when we were at Roadrunner, I had spoken to Nickelback and, and said to them, like, you guys, you guys should do a documentary or we should do a documentary. And you should show people the side of, of the band, you know, where Ryan Peake, you know, goes to Africa to help get clean water for kids in Africa that don't have clean drinking water. Mm. Like, you guys should, should show people what you do besides, you know, the music. You know, because then it's not just some person that you've never met, you don't know, and you don't care about that you're bashing. Kind of like the you know, the anonymity of the internet allows you to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Then you see the good that these guys do, you know, and then it, it humanizes them, and then it, it makes people think twice about like, okay, I, don't, you know, I mean, I like their music, but I can respect them as human beings for what they do, and I think people just take it to a level that's just. It's just it's just unnecessary, and I don't understand why you would waste your time and energy. If you're not a fan of the band's music, all right, move on. You really mm. need to sit there and bash them. I'll, and again, I, I would say I disagree. And as a thrash metal documentarian, this might be heresy. But like, listen, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm telling I'm telling the truth. I, I think that they they write songs that I appreciate. I understand where they're coming from. They put on a good show live. Mm. And end of story. They've got Pantera's pyro guy, I think. Oh, at least um, they did. I didn't know that. Then that explains some of it because they have they have a great live show. Yeah, I think um, 
I'm quite cynical about why people hate. I think it's a desperate pledge to be interesting, which that's a very cynical way of looking at it when people hate. I think that's when people hate on anything, to be fair. But yeah, it's, it's I, one thing I want Nickelback to do is the same as Metallica. I want them to do a tour, but I want them to go, we're going to cut the budget by 75% and we're going to do like smaller venues and we're just going to bash out these 75 minute sets and it's just going to be fucking brilliant. Like they've got the songs to stand it up. Like Cold, Coldplay did this. Now we're going way off. <clears throat> but Cold, Coldplay had one great album and the rest of their music was just, we'll put on a laser show at the gig and we'll just write a shit song that goes with it. Nickelback have great songs and great visuals. I'd like to see all the production stripped out and just hear the songs, just to sort of like, not because they have anything to prove, but because it would kick tits. Yeah. It's because they're kind of like a, especially the earliest of a sort of post-grunge and then they move into a more, what we'd regard as a contemporary space. And that contemporary stuff kicks ass in the clubs. And I'd love to hear it coming out of like a, an actual Les Paul on a stage in my face, not like 50 yards away on a, in an arena. But you, so, you know, to, to your point, you were asking how did MTV deal with the backlash? I mean, MTV played bands if, if they were, you know, doing well. And in the mm-hmm. early 2000s, you know, Nickelback with How You Remind Me, especially, I mean, it's still one of the biggest songs ever, you know? So MTV had no qualms about playing Nickelback videos, you know, for the years in the early 2000s, especially, you know, when they were selling records and before any sort of backlash hit. Um they did not play them that much while I was at Roadrunner. I do remember VH1 had a top 20 countdown show. Right. And VH1 basically, you know, counted down the top 20 songs, the top 20 videos. So mm-hmm. they uh, they sort of would be holding to play Nickelback, who would occasionally be in the top 20. So then you want to play their video. Sure. But at that point, MTV had sort of, you know, stopped playing videos and certainly playing Nickelback videos and VH1 took the mantle, you know, with an older audience uh, yeah. and a top 20 show. Yeah. I mean, the Nickelback arc into Roadrunner's history is kind of, it's all, it, the post-20, it's the 21st century arc of Roadrunner in general. There's, it all happens in those like two years, in like 99 to 2001, you got Slipknot and you got Nickelback and you've got the universal uh, purchase of well, however many shares or whatever. But you've got these massive fucking flagships. You've got these triple AIists Nickelback and Slipknot, but Roadrunner is still doing this really cool underground shit. A lot of the stuff that fell off from like Ferret and, and Trustkill, like all the stuff which was incubated in those spaces in the indie kind of what we now call metalcore, maybe post-hardcore spaces, like the kill switches and the triviums and the um, all the remains yeah. and things like that. They all got, they ended up being the, the kings and the, the trendsetters. So when people say that Nickelback harmed Roadrunner's brand, it's like, well, you know, in the same way that fucking Star Wars harmed Disney's brand, doesn't don't make any sense, you know what I mean? No, it 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 doesn't make any sense, you know. I mean, you know, I, I, I totally disagree, completely disagree. And and if nothing else, you know, Nickelback and Slipknot, you know, they were the biggest bands on the label, you know, you know, to, to quote somebody at the, you know, they kept the lights on, you know, so. You know, really, without Nickelback and Slipknot and the bigger bands on a label, the smaller bands would have never had the opportunity to be on Roadrunner because there yeah. wouldn't have been any money or staff to support all these other bands. You know, right. so eh. Eh. yeah, you know, we can have a whole separate Nickelback conversation. But, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of like 
for the documentary, I'm thinking about just cutting it out. Like, because like the, the, to talk, when I like to talk about the backlash, I link a lot of it with the fight I've been fighting for the past four years about The Last Jedi, the greatest Star Wars uh, film ever made. And I'm like, oh, this definitely ties in. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but like when somebody hates on something so much, it actually kind of makes me gravitate to them, to them more as to, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. right? Because, you know, when, when punk rock and thrash metal came out, every, you know, every, you know, person who used to love hard rock almost, you know, a lot of people hated it, you know? Mm. And that's one of the reasons I like thrash metal because it wasn't easily accessible and it wasn't stuff that, you know, other people liked. It wasn't like you could walk down the street and hear everybody playing thrash metal. No. You know, I know, and I know it's totally different with Nickelback, but I don't know. There's that little piece of like, you guys hate them really that much? I got to check them out, <laughs> you know? You got to support the underdog, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about your migration. I like calling these things migrations. When you move from MTV over to Roadrunner. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, basically, I uh, had a friend uh, at Roadrunner who knew somebody uh, at MTV. Actually, I had a friend at MTV who knew somebody at, at Roadrunner. And they brought me in and I sat down with uh, Jonas, who is the head of the label, along with uh, Madeline Scarpula, who is uh, the head of marketing, and Dave Rath. Uh, Dave Rath, who is uh, the head of A&R now. Yes. And we sat down and we spoke. And I remember them showing me, you know, the Kill Switch Engage video for Holy Diver. And, you know, I watched the video and they asked for my thoughts. And then they asked how much the video was. And I forget what it was, but I pretty much nailed it. And then they said, oh, we thought that this video, you know, would, would look like it was twice as expensive. And, you know, we thought that the, you know, production company might be ripping us off. You're saying that? I said, no, you know, what they delivered here, you know, was a lot for the money. So that was my introduction to uh, the Roadrunner world. Um, you know, we're looking to do videos. We're going to have to be, you know, doing them on a, on a, on a budget. And um, we want them to look great. And um, you know, okay. that was my uh, introduction to Roadrunner. I remember the first, the first day I had started there, um, I had left MTV after years, and I got a call from a show called That Metal Show. It essentially was like a Headbangers Ball type show that was on VH1. And I knew the hosts of the show and they called up and they said, you got to do the show. I said, I just started a roadrunner. I just jumped out of the MTV circle, that little wheel I've been on forever. I, I can't, I can't leave them now. I can't leave them. Yeah. So I decided to stay at, uh, at roadrunner. And, uh, you know, the first couple of times I went out to see bands with, with, uh, with the staff at roadrunner, you know, we went out to see airborne. I remember at a small oh. club called Don Hills. You know, and uh, the staff is all there, like a big party, you know, the band's playing and it was their showcase for Roadrunner. And it sort of was just like, you know, being part of a gang, you know, you were on the Roadrunner staff, but it was like a gang took over this bar and, you know, you're watching your band playing and it's an open bar. And I was like, wow, this is a lot different than MTV, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> did you, um, did you, this one thing, yeah, there's, there's always like this, um, and it's kind of, a, it's much more of a, a deeper um, anecdote that people tend to give me. So I'm doing it injustice by saying it because I didn't work at Roadrunner, but the culture was so strong within the workforce that it became almost impossible to penetrate. So was there any point where you thought I should have done that metal show or was it always fucking bleeding Roadrunner red, as they say? You know, once once I told that metal show that I, that I couldn't do it, you know, um, I, I pretty much moved on. And the thing is, is I had been at MTV at that point for, for a long time, for like 10, 12 years, 13 years, maybe. Mm. And uh, it was it was time for something new and a new challenge. 
and you know, like I said, the, the, the people at Roadrunner were great, you know, and um, to this day, it just remembering the times working with everybody, it was some of the craziest times, some of the hardest work I've ever done, but some of the most rewarding. And that's what the people told me when I was taking a record label job. In fact, the person who interviewed me for that metal show, she had just come from like Sony. She was the head of marketing at Sony. Mm -hmm. And she said, you don't want to go to a label. Here's all the reasons why. And she was right. <laughs> she, was right. she was completely right. Um, but still, it was like this beautiful, dysfunctional, but just amazing, you know, like I said, it was like being a part of a gang, you know? It was cool. <laughs> so what's your remit in your role? Is, is how, how are we phrasing it? Direct or head of video production? I, I guess when I got there, they were calling me video commissioner. And I said, well, this sounds like something out of Batman. I'm the commissioner. It sounds, the commissioner. Like, it, it sounds like the role comes with a hat. Yeah, exactly. That's the commissioner is not really what I do. It's kind of like the director of video production and the production and development. So that's kind of what my title became. And or maybe I just started calling myself that. I don't know. But that's what's on my resume. <laughs> so what, what was your role there in terms of was every video that was coming through? Were you going, yep, yep, yep. Sign the paperwork, sign the budget. Yes, this meets the annual cycle, um, our quota for videos for the year. What's the, what's the, the gist? Basically, the marketing department would have a budget for the every, each album cycle for the band. Uh, you know, they would determine what the first single is going to be and what the budget is for the video. You know, they'd get together with me and the band and management and say, okay, the first video, video for, you know, Blackstone Cherry has a budget of X amount of dollars and here's the due date, here's the song, here are the lyrics, and uh, this is kind of the vibe we're looking for. So I'd get on the phone with the guys in the band and management and say, what are you guys looking for? And um, do you have any directors in mind or production companies? And then I would kind of be the liaison between getting treatments in, basically directors and, uh, you know, artists, production companies writing up an idea of what they thought this song should be, the video for the song should be. Okay. So I'd get all these creative concepts in, I'd read them all and with the marketing people and Jonas, the president of uh, Roadrunner, sort of vet them. And then we'd kind of go back to the band and say, here's, you know, like five or 10 of our favorites. What do you think? And then with wow. the band, I'd work together on what they liked, what they didn't like. And we'd eventually either pick something or we would come up with something completely different. And then we would schedule on a, uh, a production schedule. You know, the band's going to be uh, in uh, Kentucky with a day off on, you know, this particular Thursday. That's when we have to shoot it. And then they got to find a crew in Kentucky that can pull this off and fly to Kentucky to make sure they are pulling it off. This sounds so remarkably familiar with a, a conversation yeah. we had earlier. <laughs> so that's how, how it went. Basically, I was given sort of marching orders. Here's the budget for this specific video. Here's the concept. Here's the due date. Make it happen. And that right. was like that for, uh, you know, documentaries, music videos, video shorts, anything basically video. That's how it worked. Um, there would be the occasional artist that would come in and somebody would say, hey, we need a quick interview with, uh, you know, Michael from Opeth. Can you shoot something? So I would shoot and light it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it was everything from DIY, shoot, light, and, you know, sort of edit yourself. Yep. to the big budgets where you were putting it all together and showing up and, you know, overseeing uh, the director and production company. Is now a good time to ask, because you've given the marching orders, so your workflow has a lot of dependencies on it. It's production crew, it's the liaison for the production crew picking up his phone, it's the band turning up, it's all these things that have to happen. 
So is it a good time to ask about which was the worst and best experience? The worst and best. You know, you listen. Can, um, you can have that in the back of your mind, and we. And, and, and I don't want to put you on the spot if, if it's too. I mean, I, I could certainly tell you there was a bunch of directors that I loved working with. You know, we talked earlier about Paul Brown, who was, uh, you know, worked with Slipknot and other mm. bands as well. But I'll always remember him for the great stuff he did with Slipknot. So Paul Brown was great. You know, Phil Mucci. Phil Mucci is somebody who did a great animated short that was won some, uh, you know, some f- uh, film festivals. And then uh, I decided that, like, we got to get this guy on board. And he wound up doing uh, the corn video for Oildale, as well as uh, an animated Stone Sour video and some just amazing work. Phil Mucci does, like, sick animated stuff, as well as, you know, you know real life videos. Uh, and then Bill Fishman, who did a lot of videos with Theory of a, of a Dead Man. Mm-hmm. He also, I believe, did Suicidal Tendencies Institutionalized. So he's always yes. been a legend. He's always been a legend in my in my book, and, and he still is. But like those are some of the directors that I, that, I, that I loved working with. I don't think there was anybody that I that I hated working with. There certainly were some videos that were um, more difficult than others. Um, you know, I, I don't know if if, if you don't have to dead. mention anyone if you don't want. This is an edited conversation. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't think anyone was so so terrible that that I would say I would never work with them again. Like like let's put it that way. You know, were there bands that took longer through the in the process? Yeah. I mean, like listen, Airborne and Blackstone Cherry are bands that took longer to kind of go through the process. Um, but I, I don't I I wouldn't say that they were more difficult in terms of like, you know, oh, Rick, you fucking suck this video. I don't know. Like nobody ever really was like that, you know, um, mm. which I, you know, you mentioned it looking back is pretty remarkable. <laughs> you didn't do um, Running Wild by Airborne, the one with yes. Lenny. You did. Yes. So yes. You just, how did that, you just sort of go, right, last one, do you want it? Anyway, yeah, well, fuck that it. Was one of the first, that was one of the first videos. Dave Rath, uh, you know, said, I'm going to fly out to you, to, to LA with you, and we're going to do this video. You know, well, actually, actually that, that's the first one that I did alone. Let me correct myself. Dave flew out for the one before that. So I was out there as an overnight shoot, and, um, you know, all went according to plan. I actually was reading Lemmy's book, White Line Fever, in, in pre-production, to just get my head around Lenny's story. Maybe if he wants to talk, we got something to talk about. And I, and I read that he had uh, uh, on his rider before, you know, I forget it was a special performance, whether it was a video or something on his rider, it said, you know, he needed a, a quart of Jack in his limo before like, you know, with, he had to have it part of the deal. And then at the end of his story in his book, he laughed and said, ah, the stupid guy, you should have never given it to me because obviously I showed up hammered and I couldn't even deliver what I was supposed to deliver. So I said, oh, man, what am I going to do? Because on the rider for the Airborne video, Running Wild, Lemmy, limo, and, you know, a quart of Jack. (laughs) So I I got on the quart of Jack, but I said, you know what? I'm going to hold on to it. He's got to actually come to set. It's not going to be in the limo. So he got out of the limo. He was pissed. He was pissed. I held it up and I said, Lemmy, I read your book. Do you understand why it's here and not in the limo? And he just smiled and he said, good job, mate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's that's uh, one of my favorite uh, roadrunner stories and certainly uh lemon story i was like I, 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 I told him i couldn't put it in the limo because then you weren't going to be in the video plus you were supposed <laughs> to be driving a truck so <laughs> did you get a, a note from dave uh, from rath saying well done that's very tactical <laughs> <you make." clears throat> 
That's it. You know, I figured out uh, I'm either not going to be friends with Lemmy or I'm not going to have a job. I, I chose I chose Roadrunner. <laughs> what you mentioned Jonas in this process in terms of the vetting the directors. I'm uncertain of this, his role as president because I know in terms of corporate terminologies, there's CEO, there's CFO, there's COO, there's president, there's this, there's that, and that. Is Jonas getting his hands dirty in like in this in this process? I don't know if he was getting his hands dirty. You know, he wasn't in there <laughs> fixing shots and stuff. I mean, he was sort of okaying the budget. He would have to okay the concept. He would have to mm. sign off on everything. Um, he certainly would look at all the cuts. Right. Um, I mean, getting his getting his hands dirty. I think to me, to me, that means he's actually like on the set or in the edits. I think and, in my in my head, if he's if he's got like a, a controlling influence over the video output, it feels like he's got a a forward a front facing brand sort of oriented role where it's controlling how Roadrunner is going to present itself to the wider world. This is, this is a big statement from that little tidbit of information you've given me, but I don't know the role of president changes in context. So I'm just trying to figure it out. Um, I can see why he'd sign up budgets. I can see why he'd um, give a shit. Shortlisting directors and seeing the shots. It's like, ah, okay. There's an awareness here that I wasn't, I wasn't initially privy to. Yeah. Jonas was, I, I would say, bigger picture. Um, and in that sense, it was it was money. You know, what's the budget? When is this due? Certainly, what's what's the single? You know, he had to approve of that as well. What are we making a video mm-hmm. for? What's the timeline? What's the marketing plan? So that was his, his main role. But certainly, if he saw a video that he thought was not appropriate for the band, he would say no. Mm. You know, and listen, the very first video that we did was for Theory of a Dead Man, a video called So Happy. My first video, Dave Rath and I went out to Vancouver and uh, it essentially was Theory of a Dead Man playing on a roof, you mm. know, and um, helicopter flying around. Great idea. Fans were going to be rushing up the stairs trying to get to this performance on the roof. I still think it's a great idea, but I, I didn't know Theory of a Dead Man well enough. And Jonas was adamant that this is not this is not who they are, you know, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, um, part of it was, uh, you know, the fact that we had a big rainstorm in Vancouver, which really limited what we were able to do in terms of shooting. Right. Uh, and also it was Jonas saying, listen, this is not the vision I have or we should have for this band. So my first video actually for Roadrunner that I did never actually aired anywhere. How often did that happen? It did not happen that often. I, I would say that only about two or three times in the four or five years I was there did that happen. And of course, the first one I was involved with, it happened. Shit. <laughs> I blame Dave Rath for it. He was there. Yeah, yeah. It's totally <laughs> not Dave Rath's fault. But that's after the money's spent, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So then, then, the, then, then the battle becomes sort of like, how much are you going to pay the, the production company uh, versus, uh, you know, how much did they not deliver on the concept and how much are you going to withhold? That always was a little troublesome for me because my background is production. Yeah. So all these people in production I'm working with are people that most likely at some point I'm going to work with again. Right. And Jim, if I'm telling you that uh, I just borrowed 50 bucks from you and I'm not going to give it back to you. You're probably never going to talk to me again. You're going to be upset. It's a lot of money. Yeah. So, you know, that was, uh, that was sort of, uh, you know, that was, that was one of the more difficult roles when we had to 
tell the production company, listen, this just did not work out. We're not going to go through with it. And that's, you know, occasionally where Doug Keogh or Jonas would come in, they would make the final call financially. You know, but, I can't but- imagine having an argument with a production company saying, well, look, we had a concept and a vision. And yes, you filmed a video, but you did not deliver on the concept and vision. Therefore, when, you know, we're enacting clause 6.3 and we're going to pay you 60% instead of the whole thing. That's like, to me, walking into that room that's had to have that conversation must have been fucking terrible. Yes, Jim, it was, it, it could be very, very, very difficult. <laughs> um, that, that, you know, you mentioned before, were there bands that were difficult? Were there shoots that were difficult? That was the most difficult part of the job. And again, it only happened a handful of times. But to have to tell a company, listen, everybody here hates the video or the band hates the video, we're not moving forward. Mm. So we can't pay you 100%. That was tough. Yeah. Fuck, man. Fuck. But back to how I'm perceiving Jonas's role in this, I, I can see why he, could, he wants to far eye everything because he doesn't want to go, hang on, we're spending 150 grand on this baby band. That doesn't fit their incubation cycle. That doesn't fit how we as a, a, a company are going to see that band go through. We need that. We need 75 grand of that to do marketing for their album or whatever. I can see that being his role. But, yeah, I mean, know. Jonas was the guy that had to ultimately decide, you know, what the marketing budget is and what the yeah. video budget is. And, you know, looking forward, is this band going to, you know, produce enough financially to, to make it worth a while? Is their video going to be 150000 or is it going to be 15000 You know? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so what I've learned here is there's as, as part of a, the videos were managed on a band basis. It was down to their life cycle upon which a video would be either built or decided not to be built or whatever, depending on how much money was there. Cool. Because in my head, there was like that arm of the business in that way that they're going to represent themselves. You could go, okay, we did it. We did well last year. Slipknot and Nickelback put out an album last year. So we've got $7 million with which to produce videos and that's on an annual basis. So by the December 31st, Rick, you must've spent smack on 7 million. Otherwise, you know, yeah, you yeah. know, that's, well, that's the target we want to hit, but no, it's, it's done in a more flexible. Is it flexible? Is it flexible? Is it, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, it was by band and it was by album cycle, you know? So if yeah. a band, uh, you know, that they had high hopes for, you know, didn't deliver in terms of sales mm. you know if the sales weren't there for the first album cycle certainly for the second album cycle the marketing budget and then henceforth the video budget was going to be less yeah you know, so so you know it was by band and by album cycle you know and yeah. if, the, if the album had legs you know if it had three singles or four or five singles you know sometimes you can get three or four videos out of it by the end you know, the fourth or fifth video might just be a live performance at a, at a club, you know, but, you know, that's it. Yeah, I, I said this to you a few uh, weeks ago, didn't I? When it's like the fourth and fifth single is always UK tour footage. And there's the band in front of Big Ben, unaccountably, every single fucking one. Yeah, yeah. As the band <laughs> on the tour bus or the band walking down the street or tuning up their instruments on a tour bus. That's that's the end of the album cycle, the budget, the video budget cycle. <laughs> it seems less restrictive, though, than my sort of model of how, how I'd budget for a video arm of the business. So you guys didn't have an in-house production team. You were outsourcing it depending on what the band's needs were on every basis, right? 
Correct. Yes. There's the, the odd, odd occasion where it'd be a simple interview. We did have a camera and a lighting and mics and stuff. So I, I could do something simple, but yeah, but if we had a band playing somewhere, we needed a video done. We were, we were going out of house. How would you cost up differently? And this is very poignant for a documentary piece than a video, a music video piece, because music video, all right, we're capturing five minutes of sexy footage. Documentary requires you to be in a certain place at a certain time, watching something unravel, usually the creation of an album or a, a tour cycle. Yeah. So would that, how would that affect the budget? And I imagine you'll need more mandates. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times when we had a making of the album, we would hire somebody that the band was close to, you know, somebody that was going to be with them anyway, that had some skills behind, you know, really, really, if you could hit record, you're going to probably be okay. It was the access. If you were with Slipknot when they're recording their new album, that was access that few people had. So, you know, fortunately bands like Slipknot, you know, had good video guys, you know, and they had people around and, we would say, listen, you're going to be there anyway, working with the band. So how about you film X amount of days for us and come up with the making of the album? You know, so if the album was being made over the course of, you know, three or four months, we would just say, hey, you know, here's what we have. Just budget yourself. But here's the chunk of change we have for you to shoot and edit this thing. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like we were paying them per day. It was kind of like per project. You can work on this for five days, if you think you're going to be able to tell the story, more likely you're probably going to need to work on this a little bit for the next 30 days or, you know, every other day for the next 30 days. But, you know, we need a making of the album. Mm-hmm. So that's how it would kind of roll out just by a, a project basis. With those making of, al- um, making of the album stuff, those appeared a lot more frequently as that yeah. decade moved on. Would you be privy to the, the business decisioning, or decisioning around that? Was it just how Roadrunner liked to package their products in those days? It was just seen as cool extra bonus content that you could put online. And then you can also put on like a special edition DVD down the road. Mm. Or, you know, when we re-release the album with bonus footage. You know, because typically these guys that were close to the band would have a lot of extra stuff. They would deliver us, you know couple of pieces about the making of the album but on the cutting room floor would be all this extra stuff so there was a lot of bang for the buck not only could you get your making of the album to promote the album when the album cycle is done then you can you know re-release like a top shelf version with two extra tracks and uh, a bunch of extra footage from the studio so it served a lot of purposes it was content that could really satisfy the person going out to buy the album the day it came out or the month before it came out. And on the back end, it could supply footage for somebody who maybe wants to go out and buy a special edition with tons of extra stuff. And each time, each iteration of that product is another line on blabbermouth.net. And it's another line on ultimate guitars and another line on metal injection. Yes. So it's all, to me, it's all about the footprint. It's all about the fingerprints rotor in a house and all our, our our traffic through the internet and through life in general. We do you know how you mentioned earlier that oh there's some, a chunk of money will throw at you someone who has access to the band to film this thing. Do you remember what that usually would be around? You I know, imagine I, it would scale up, but I, I would love to sell you it's like five to ten grand. Right. Um it depended on the band, because obviously the bigger bands had more money. It depended on the length that the person would be filming. You know, mm. are they going on the road and doing a like a, a tour piece on the road? 
or are they going to just do like a making of the album and they'll be done in a couple of weeks? So but is, I, is, I would say in the ballpark, probably three to 5,000 up to maybe 10, maybe 12, depending on the amount of content and the amount of time. So it's definitely not chump change, but you're not spending, you're not buying a second music video effectively. No, this, this was bang for the buck. You know, it was relatively oh, wow. simple because it was, it was DIY. It was one guy with a camera, gorilla style. You know, there's no beautiful big lighting set up. It's behind the scenes, one person mm-hmm. and trying to get as much content as possible. Wow. Wow. Okay. So let's move into, is there any, any other stories that I'm missing here that I've not touched upon, which you might've been. Back Beer in factory and the, and the Lemmy and the Lemmy one are the two, the two, <laughs> two of my favorites. <laughs> These don't surprise me one bit. <laughs> so I want to, I want to start talking about the, the Warner years. Obviously you were there during the Warner tenure. Um, and I'll preface it with a disclaimer that's, I'm kind of aware that whenever I talk about this bit and this period, it sometimes comes across as I'm finding an antagonist and I'm painting an antagonist over there. Um, But the reality is it's just business. And what happened in 2012 when a lot of people got let go, it's just the migration, the evolution of the business for better or for worse, mostly worse, but depends who you ask. Um, But at the same time, Roadrunner is still there doing great stuff. But, was there a point where you sort of thought when you were going into the office, okay, something's changing here. Something's amiss. Yeah. I mean, when I was at MTV and Warner bought, bought the stake in Roadrunner, I remember calling Aliyah up who was in, in marketing and one of my close friends there and said, Oh my God, are you okay? He said, yeah, everything's okay. Nothing's changing. It's going to be okay. You know, then I got to Roadrunner and really never heard or anything from Warner uh, there was a certain point, I, I don't remember when, when the, the human resources team and Warner started paying a little bit more attention. It's probably when Case sold uh, you know, his final stake. I don't know the exact details. You probably know more than me. But there was a point where Case basically sold. So, the, you know, Warner had a, was it 100%? It basically owned the company. Yeah, there is like a, it's 50%, then 73%, then the rest is all over like a four-year period that yeah. escapes me at the minute. But there, um, there, yeah. there definitely was a was a time, probably in 2011, 2012, beginning of 2012, when we all of a sudden we were going up to Warner for meetings, and you know once a week the uh, the, the Warner Human Resources people would be down in the Roadrunner offices asking if we needed anything and how we could help and yada yada yada. Having having been through like these layoffs before at MTV. Like I knew the clock was ticking as soon as case sold. It was just a matter of time. Um, you know, so we, we could certainly see the writing on the wall. I was surprised that I lasted until the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. Um, you know, the sad thing is, is, uh, you know, I think the saddest thing is really, I think everybody will acknowledge when Monty Connor was let go, that was just the heart and soul of that company was just taken away. So to, to, to me, really, when Monty was let go, that was the end of Roadrunner as we know it. And I have people still at Roadrunner that are uh, doing great things and they're awesome at what they do. Um, but that certainly is when things changed. To me, that was the end. Forget about changing. That was the end. <laughs> you know, but really in 2011, when the Warner human resources folks started showing up a little bit more often and we were called up to the meetings, Oh, you're going to be part of the, like the Warner meeting. You guys are part of the family. You know, 
<laughs> you know, just wondering, like, uh, you know, uh, the Sopranos, when each member of our small, smaller family is going to be whacked. <laughs> there's this, there's this, just, the, just on the in, I want to tell you the inverse, the exact inverse of that, what you just said there in terms of, oh, you're going to be part of the Warner family, come to the Warner meeting. Um, Paolo D'Alessandro told me this when I spoke to him. We revert back to that. And a few people have reiterated it too. Um, so Silver Side Up comes out. It comes out on 9-11. Times are just generally weird. Everything's weird. The feelings are weird because there's this massive success, but there's massive tragedy, there's massive sort of vibe. Case sends an email out company-wide. This is 2001, saying this, basically to the tune of, and I don't know the words of this, but it's basically... This album is a hit. I don't care what the fuck you think about it. I don't care what you're doing right now. I want you to deliver this album. No ifs, no buts, no excuses. Just a proper like rousing the troops shit. Anyway, Silver Side Up does what Silver Side Up does. And then the first, one of the first Universal meetings, because obviously they were bought by Universal in 2001. They either <laughs> go up to this like big sort of like fancy, let's call it like a hotel suite or something like that and have like this conference. And apparently, Hank Hacker, who is in the German office, he had that email framed, and he went up and gave it to, and gave it to Case and read it out. But it was like, it was, it was, in this sort of really professional corporate setting, he was just like this loud German screaming about rousing the troops about this fucking rock album. But apparently, all the Universal guys who would have, you know, part of the Universal family were just like, "What the fuck is going on? Why right, is right. This, yeah, why is there this fucking German screaming?" <laughs> on the stage of this framed fucking email. <laughs> yeah, listen, you know, you know, you, you didn't have somebody to go out with a, a rallying cry like that. There was nobody doing that at a certain point after Warner took over. I oh, think, wow. you know, mm. uh, you know uh, especially after, after Monty left, you know, or Monty was let go. Um, it was it was hard to get that that rallying cry going in in my mind, and that's that's how I remember it. We all were there. We did our jobs as best we could. You know, I even remember uh, Joe from Gojira, you know, coming back to sit in what we call the creative department. It was uh, myself, Leif Covington, and uh, and Gail. Gail was doing mainly the, the photo stuff and uh, packaging album artwork, and Leif kind of was helping both us, Gail and I. I video and Gail doing the creative packaging. And I, we remember come, Joe coming back there in our little area that was sort of separate from the rest of the company. And we said, we're so sorry about Monty, but like, you know, we're, we're huge fans. And if you ever just want to come here and just chill and hang out and talk creative stuff, video stuff, art stuff, packaging stuff, like just come back here. Like we usually don't talk about like the money and the marketing and the budget and the touring and stuff. So, and then we, and we have a nice couch. You can come and just lay on the couch, like a therapy session. Um, so I always, I always thought that was kind of nice. We were trying to some somehow carry, you know, the mantle that Monty had by mm. telling one of his bands, "Listen, it's going to be okay. We're here. We love you. Come back and hang out. Whatever you need, just let us know." Yeah. And then, you know, six months later, seven months later, the three of us were gone. So, <laughs> did they ever? <clears throat> did they ever get heads or tails as to why you were let go? Is it just? Did they say? We're just doing cutbacks, which is, I, I don't know the American process of getting sacked. 
I'm very familiar it, it, with the it, English it, version. Basically, it was a corporate restructuring. Okay. So if I was the head of video production at Roadrunner, you had the head of, the head of video production at Warner Music Group, and there wasn't any real need for, for two of us. Although mm-hmm. the person at the Warner Music Group would probably tell you, oh my God, now I got 30 extra bands I have to work with for video. I, I do need help. But in the corporate world, there's two people. They essentially have the same job title. Yeah. We only need one of them. So that's essentially what happened. There. You should have stayed as the fucking commissioner, mate. You should have kept that on. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'm not the director, I'm the commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's something, again, that wasn't unexpected. Um, was I disappointed? Like, you know, a- absolutely. But it, there definitely was a part of me that thought that this is the end anyway. Mm. And that after four <clears throat> years, that Roadrunner, not only is the company changing so drastically that I won't recognize it, but I think it's time for me to go back and do TV because I yeah. did not want to be a record label guy. You know, I didn't want to be the guy that can only do heavy metal videos and hard rock documentaries. I wanted to do television films and other stuff. Yeah. So for, for, for me, even though I was disappointed, it probably was good timing to get me back into uh, what I usually do TV. Mm-hmm. Cool. What is it? What are you doing now then? Uh, these days, I'm working on true crime TV shows. Oh. So basically, it's like murder mystery type stuff. But um, for the for the past you know few years, 2017 to 2020, I was working on a show called Live PD. Live PD is a, is essentially like a show called Cops. I don't know if you are familiar with I've the show it. Cops. I've seen it referenced in The Simpsons enough. Yeah, well, essentially, you you we would follow live live on TV. Uh, six or seven different police officers around on a Friday and Saturday night. And some nights nothing would happen. And other nights you'd have high speed, hundred mile per hour car chases and shootings and DWIs. And um, I was one of the producers that essentially watched the monitor. And then when something happened would relay to the other directors and supervisors, like there's something going on in Miami. You got to go here. And the director would say, we're going to Miami live. And so that was, that actually at times was even crazier than Roadrunner because it was live TV. Yeah, live sure. TV. Wow. You, know? you should have been there working Sunday night, mate. You'd have seen them all coming outside my house. At your house. Yeah. And then we do the show. I'm going to pitch uh, that one of the locations be your block. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the roughest part of West Yorkshire. You know, and, and it's funny because in the world of like this live PD, this cop show, meeting up with my world of like, television production and and music videos, I always thought to myself, what if we were able to get like the new band we signed, Zach Wilde's new band or new album coming out, right? And we knew exactly where the cops were going to be patrolling and we just crank up the music and we throw a party and there you go, free publicity. The cops come in and and they arrest the singer, whoever it may be. I always had my mind, Zach Wilde, I don't know why, just the drinking and loud guitar and... He's overdue being arrested, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. gone too long without. <laughs> I always <laughs> thought it, was, uh, it would be a genius marketing plan. He gets street cred by being arrested. The album yeah. gets plugged. You hear a little bit of the music. It'd be great. Never <laughs> happened. Couldn't pull it off. Like Lo say, I think were were they Roadrunner in Europe? They might have been. Uh, well, I I'm not. They, I think they might have been in, in Europe. I'm not sure. I'm not going to die on that. Hill. Yes, you're all right. Hi, <laughs> right, Rick. Is there anything I've missed? <clears throat> I mentioned, I said it before. I don't think so. you, you, you nailed pretty much 
pretty much everything, you know? Um, I'm really glad that we, one, we talked, and secondly, we took the approach of, let's just start from here, and let's just meander, because I've learned a lot, and I'm probably going to come back around to you on a, certain, on a number of certain things. Oh, whatever you need, whatever you need, absolutely.